0: Good morning.
1: My name is Richard Parker, and I'm a senior fellow here at the Shorenstein Center. And uh, in uh, the absence of Alex Jones, I'm going to be chairing this session this morning. Um, before we start, um, I'd like to just thank a couple of people, uh, and I'd like them to stand. Allison Comer, where are you? Where? Allison Comer is the heart and soul of the Goldsmith Program here. She does all of the work that makes this happen. She's the one who handles everything from A to Z, and she, Nancy Palmer, and Edie Hallway, and Heather McKinnon are the lifeblood of this organization. So, Allison, thank you very, very much. Uh, What I'd like to do this morning is uh, organize the discussion in the following way. First, uh, I want to uh, say again thank you to David Fanning for being David Fanning, uh, and uh, the work that you've produced over the years, and also for giving just a terrific talk last night, that it was a, in the best sense, a provocation to thought, which I think is the best kind of talk imaginable, and we need to be doing more of those at Harvard. So thank you for setting the bar high. Uh, Second, my congratulations, our congratulations to Michael Hinman and to John Maxwell Hamilton for extraordinary books, uh, uh, fully deserving of the Goldsmith Prize. And I, look forward to the next ones. I was talking with Michael about what he's doing for the next book, and so we'll be sitting ready with the prize, Michael, (laughs) but keep writing. Uh, Terrific. Uh, What we're going to do this morning is invite uh, all of the journalists uh, who are here at the table to give uh, some background uh, about how they came to the story and uh, both the challenges uh, they faced and some of the techniques they used. This is meant to be Both a craft discussion in some sense, but it's also an opportunity for journalists to tell a larger audience about what it means to be and how it works doing investigative journalism. Uh, I have a particular fondness for the field. I uh, co founded a magazine called Mother Jones many years ago. Yay! Uh, And (laughs) thank you. Thank you, Mother. Deep baritone, my mother. Um, And then went on to help found uh, investigative reporters and editors when Don Bowles was murdered so uh, horribly uh, in Phoenix many, many years ago. So I think of investigative uh, journalism as the hope diamond uh, of the jewelry collection that is journalism today and that part of journalism which most needs to be protected as we go forward through a difficult financial period for the industry. What I thought we'd do is start uh, with uh, Raquel Rutledge, who uh, won the prize for cashing in on kids, ask her to speak for about 10 minutes, and then talk with the rest of you, uh, each of the uh, finalist groups, for about 10 minutes. Rather than it have just be a straight monologue by each of you seriatum, my encouragement to all of you would be to feel comfortable intervening as your colleagues speak to say yeah yeah we had that same problem or did you ever try or where did you get pushback on that because we got heavy pushback on that and this is what we did to get around it in other words I want this to feel like a conversation in which the speaker at the moment is leading the conversation but in which we are not simply sitting passive like students in a lecture hall so my invitation to the rest of you is all of you here at the table feel free to participate as we uh, as we go through this morning, so with that, let me start with Raquel again. Our congratulations, a terrific job, and uh, you. yours you uh, yours is the uh, mic.
2: Okay, is it? Can everyone hear me? All right. Yep. Okay. Um, well, let me say thank you very much um, to um, the Schwartzstein folks for having us and, and hosting us, and to the judges. That's much appreciated. The cashing in on kids series started um, with a tip from. Um, a concerned government worker who um, was worried about a child who had been left in a daycare van in the hot summer in Milwaukee for several hours and had died. And this person called the newspaper and um, left a message late one evening, I wasn't working, um, but left a message with our night our, our night guy and said um, that child never should have been in the daycare that day because his mother um, had been laid off from work um, and that tip landed in my email box the next day. And it's one of those things that easily could have fallen through the cracks in a lot of newspapers um, because it's, if it went to the cop's reporter, um, he would have been following up on the death. And so you would look at a tip like that and say, well, this is not a quick daily. I'm busy with this other follow-up. There's no way I'm going to get to this. Um, but at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, we had a system set up where um, I had been covering um, what we were calling public investigator, um, which was co- sort of consumer angle news, and um, so when that tip landed in my box, I thought, that, you know, the first thing I thought was, if this is true, if this happens to be true, this would be huge. So it's one of those things that um, could have fallen through the cracks, but it didn't. And so um, I started looking at it, met with the person who called. And um, I remember very clearly that first meeting when I sat down and this, this person is telling me how... They knew um, that this mother shouldn't that the child should not have been there. Because that's the first question, of course, you ask is how do you know? How do you know that? Uh, and uh, the person pulled out a stack of papers and said, "Well, I can show you very clearly here." So you know, your eyes light up and you go, oh, all right. Um, now I have something to work with." Yeah. <laughs> but you know, those papers were just a roadmap. They weren't they weren't in themselves enough to to prove anything. But they they could direct me, and so I could go out. Um, Basically, they spelled out what kids should be where and when and where their parents were employed, which is very, it's sensitive information. Uh, The person that was giving this to me had complained repeatedly to supervisors, to legislators, had been very vocal about the fraud um, that this person had been seeing, and nothing was done. Everyone said, well, that's, you know, there's nothing I can do about it. It's a big issue to tackle. Nobody wanted to take it on. So politicians knew about it. It was not a secret. Um, But... This person again was was you know risking uh, their career to to give this information, but felt like it was very important so anyway, it spelled out all this confidential information, but then it was my job to go out and and find out what was actually happening so with that information, I would go uh, with a photographer and we would um, stake out some of the places that that were supposed to have a hundred children or supposed to even, you know we started small there was one particular um, provider that was billing the state. For almost three, she billed every single day of the week, claimed to take care of children seven days a week, every day in the winter, while she worked at a lawn care service. Even on the day she had her seventh child, she was delivering her baby that day. It was the a lawn care service in Milwaukee. I know, that's, that was red flag. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, you might be shoveling, maybe. But, and it was second shift. So what are you doing in the evening hours? I mean, it just it did not make any sense. Anybody with any common sense would say, well, let me look at this. And that's what um, the the uh, the workers, the county workers, you know, weren't doing. They weren't verifying anything. So people were being uh, qualified for childcare based on completely bogus jobs. You know, they, there was nothing to verify. You could you could write on a scratch of paper, um, "I'm employed at such and such a place," and uh, stamped approval. Nobody was verifying that there was actually employment going on. This this program was set up in the 1990s. Uh, as part of welfare reform, to move, primarily to move women into the workforce. And so it was, it was set up in such a way um, to push people off. And it, 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 by design, it, it, it pushed women into the workforce, yes, but it, there not a lot of thought was given to what was going to happen to their children. Um, so, where else can I go with this? So, so, that's once we started doing the stakeouts and we found out that, in fact, kids were not showing up. Um, you know, we ran our first story. We, st- we investigated for about four months before we ran our first two stories. We found that in one case, there were sisters um, that were allowed to stay home and take care of each other's children, supposedly take care of each other's children. And there, was a sis- there, was, there were four sisters who stayed home and made about half a million dollars over the course of less than two years um, for taking care of each other's children. And they actually didn't even have to take care of each other's kids because again, nobody's looking. Um, Let me ask you a
1: question. I want to ask you a a technique question that relates to how a tip becomes a story. You said that your paper has a system so that, uh, rather than routing to the police beat, it came to you. Say, what is that system? I mean, is it smart editor? Is it well? What what happens? I mean, how does a tip then become a potential story in different uh, news organizations?
2: Well, I think um, yeah. I mean, with us, it was it, the public investigator beat was a beat that was designed to kind of pick up. It was kind of a safety net beat that um, was designed to pick up what could be what other reporters would look at and say, "Oh, that's kind of petty. It looks like the pothole beat." Or I don't want to do that story. It's right. not it's not a glamorous beat at all. Mm-hmm. And when you know when it was first considered before, that's kind of my thinking was like, "Oh, do I really want to do this?" But I realized once I got into it that you know little tips that look like little tips when you dig into them, they are they often I mean, our stories, I, I worked with, there were two of us, and um, my colleague, Ellen Gabler, um, who's now at the Chicago Tribune, but she uh, and I together, we these things would turn into page one stories almost every time we wrote about them, anything, because when you look into little stuff, when you take the time, you will find systematic problems almost everywhere you look. So they're not the petty things that they appear to be. Um, and so Marty Kaiser, our editor, had long, for years, wanted to establish a beat, a beat like that that would pick up things that nobody else kind of wanted. And, and we called it public investigator, which was, like I said, consumer stuff. Everywhere you turn, somebody, consumers are getting screwed over in a lot of ways everywhere. So this was an avenue for them you know, to come.
1: Let me ask the second question, which is on the one level, this could be a story about individual fraud, but on another, it reflects on uh, a welfare reform system that was supposed to be the jewel of state-based welfare reform systems that propelled Tommy Thompson from state-level success mm. to being a national figure of great renown. This sounds like a big screw up systemically that yeah. they sort of built the system and then forgot to put the engine in the car. I mean Yeah, I mean well, I don't I know, know if they forgot how
2: yeah, I mean uh, yeah, it's definitely smoke and mirrors. I mean that was a, yeah, Tommy Thompson really rose quickly being able to say yes, we got a, almost everybody off the welfare rolls, but they weren't they were off the rolls, the welfare rolls, but they were actually getting more subsidies through all the different programs that were then designed um, to to pick it up. So um, it would be interesting to go back and talk to him now. I mean, what Tommy Thompson will say is that everything was in place when he left. But but the truth is, um, when I've talked to investigators that were around during that time in the 1990s, um, they recall sitting in meetings. I mean, they were, they were there. I've talked to numerous ones who were there at the time, and they were told, let this go. You're a fraud investigator. You don't need to look at these daycare providers. We need them. Um, we are moving people into the workforce, and we need people to take care of children, and so don't don't go after it.
3: Can we ask yes, Dean about this? Because he was in the, tip of the yeah, I, I talked to him last night about Bre- it.
2: Briefly.
1: Yeah. <laughs> 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 you remember that he and Mary Jo Bain left the Clinton administration, <laughs> <laughs> too. So. This is, could- Let me ask the rest of you. Do you have systems in place? What kind of tip conversion systems do you have in place? I mean, and are they efficient, or are they slapdash, or...? Is it literally luck of the draw that somebody calls you, you pick up the phone or get the email? Is there any kind of systemic oversight of conversion of tips into a story by finding the right reporter match?
4: Um, our situation is a little different in terms of that um, um, uh, I run the unit. I'm, I've been with it since 98, and um, which is when we first created it there. And... Um, uh what we do is uh we originally it was myself acting as an investigator producer and then we had a reporter and a and, and a uh, photographer that expanded to where now we have Mark and another reporter and we have uh Keith Tomshi who's uh does uh, both uh, editing and um, uh, uh, and photography uh the point being is that so we've Kind of worked out a haphazard sort of system, or I, I guess you could say uh, an impromptu system, in terms of who gets which story. Um, uh, part of it is based on does it come over the transom, is what mm-hmm. we call it. You know? mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, did it not come directly to them from a source? You mm-hmm. know? So, so if that occurs, of course, then they have um, uh, they're the primary on the story, you know, basically. Uh, we also have a um, a, a web tips, uh, uh, system which works very well, and um, and so then what will happen is that I, I kind of make the call on those, and then of course um, basically I mean we're all looking for stories all of the time. If it if it's if it's myself or Keith who happens to uh, uh, pull up a couple of investigations, then. We go through a process of figuring out, you know, who's best for the story, the story who, uh, what's the best timing in terms of is somebody deep into another investigation or for the other
1: Anybody else? Go ahead, well, Mr. I was going to
5: say in, in Raleigh, um, it's it's a little more haphazard than we would like, and we're trying to brush it up. Um, <coughs> senior editor for news and I try to communicate. So our our guys on the I team field a lot of tips,
1: thankfully. Of course.
5: And they're very good at trying to evaluate quickly, is this something that we ought to to dive into or is it something that we should pass on to a beat reporter? Mm -hmm. And I want to know about those tips because I want the editor for those beat reporters to know that those tips are being passed out because depending on the reporter and how aggressive they are and how busy they are at a given time, they can fall through the cracks. So we're trying to get more uh, systemic or Mm -hmm. systematic, I guess, about making sure we know where the tips are, but there's no there's no uh, replacing a, a reporter who will just take it and run Bradley with it. You know, it's story. Yeah.
3: We the story. We we did something that's a sort of. We of course get stuff in the mail, phone calls, phone calls, those kinds of uh, those kinds of leads, and you pass them on to the kind of uh, reporter or producer who's likely to follow up on them. Um, it's not often that they pay off, at least for the no, kind no. of scale yeah. of work that we do. Right. Um, we need quite a lot of water behind the dam before we can really figure out whether or not it's going to be possible, but we tried something just in a very small way on the website around uh, lawn disorder where we actually put a tip line up and we've asked people to do there's there's a very interesting part of it is that the photographs that were evidence with um, what turns out to be first what appears to be one body but then an examination turns out to be two bodies a photograph taken by uh, a photographer working for the Times, Picayune, with a reporter of a group of policemen standing around, um, and there's no uh, further record of what happened to mm, that right. in, those individuals. So <clears throat> that photograph is on the website, and if you click on it, it's a PDF that becomes a poster, and the poster says, Do you, can you identify any of the people in this picture, and they're a little sort of phone numbers at the bottom, so in a neighborhood that's not wired into the internet, you can stick it on a shop window mm-hmm. or on a message board, which was a kind of first step for us at least. And I don't know what you've done, what's happened on the tip front. Have we got any, any tips that have come out of any of this this We've stage? We've
6: gotten some tips, um, but uh, you know, we had this discussion last night, and that is an issue for us, for the people that we're looking for, for particularly that story. Uh, two bodies laying on the ground are they alive are they dead what happened to these men in the wake of Hurricane Katrina and and the wired issue is still an issue um, for Mm. people who may not be in New Orleans are they going to frontline are they going to NOLA.com ProPublica maybe not probably not Um, and even if we put up some posters and gotten that out there is that enough to find the people who know what happened there and um,
3: we've gotten some tips (laughs) that's <laughs> a weird ones, mm-hmm. <laughs> but there is something potentially out there, which is this what you know? In some way it's called crowdsourcing or whatever. But there is a there is a chance that we can, in a, in an increasingly wide world, in sort of mobile devices and others, you know, we can get closer to being able to encourage people to bring bring information to us. It's going to be something that's a work in progress. Richard, sure.
7: uh, I'd like to put in a word for adding your email address to the bottom of your story. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. that in all from it. I also want to put a word in for being a little bit proactive. Uh, In the recent stories that I did, uh, I had received information about pension abuse, generally. Uh, I had hit a a roadblock, or I had stalled in effect, and I decided just to call cold various retirement boards around the state, introduce myself, and try to build up a little rapport very quickly, what's going on. In this case, uh, one of the Executive director said, well, I'll tell you, Sean, uh, there's a former state rep uh, who engineered uh, a bill through the legislature to get himself credit for being a library trustee, and he's about to cash in. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said, great, who is it? And he said, I can't tell you. <laughs> but he did say, uh, it's in a city north of Boston. Oh, oh great! great. Yeah. Yeah. Right. so, so fabulous. if anybody's local here you know that I pick up the phone and call Revere
2: <laughs>
7: and uh, they said the Revere library and they said no we don't have a former rep here then I called Chelsea, no, Medford, no yeah. Everett, no, Finally, Malden yeah. and the librarian there said uh, oh no we don't have a state rep but there's a former state senator who just got off the board tried the library board, and I said, oh, how long had he been on the board? He said, oh, my. She said, oh, my. Ever since he got out of the state senate. As soon as he, she said that, I knew the whole story. Got it. That he had engineered this to link the two services, and it was just now a matter of documenting. it. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and That was that was a yeah. yeah, Mark. Just a,
8: a, a quick comment about um, how global commenting on our stories has worked. We do have a news tip line, like most news organizations, and we get lots and lots of tips that are sure. typically not, not a high-quality tip. Right. Um, and that can also be uh, said of some of the global comments have the stories. It's, it's a mixed bag. Yeah. You, you, you get some very intelligent people, and you get some not so uh, malt as well. Um, however, embedded in, in those comment threads are some really some very intelligent uh, ideas and commentary Challenge for us has been to, to you, know, you know, lean those, those uh, out and then put them to use. And, um, and there was one story in particular about uh, it was kind of a real estate fraud case, and we had highlighted uh, an individual with lost some money uh, on, on a deal, and before long we had people commenting about this individual mm-hmm. and their background in real estate, the mm-hmm. so no properties mm-hmm. they own, and so. We we're sort of school in the background of you know, this individual through our, our and so it, it's, a, it's a difficult process but it, it can be rich with uh, ideas great.
1: let me turn to Sean uh, and have you say something about your story so that we can use that as the next sort of focus for moving this forward
7: uh, well I'll just add thank you Richard yeah. uh, thanks it's great to be with all you fine folks uh, who do this kind of work Another technique that I've found successful is to, well, relatively successful, uh, is to, if you need somebody who's a state legislator and they're ducking you, just go to the office. Uh, and when the chief of staff says, well, he's not available, um, you know, we'll call you when he's available, you just say, okay, I'll wait. And just wait in that office, you know, and, and eventually I think you'll flush him out. <laughs> uh, it, bring a book. Uh, well, in, in this recent case, uh, I, I finally uh, managed to get the state senator to bring me in. It was about three hours or so. And I'd already briefed his chief of staff and his media person. And he, he says, "All right, come on in." And he, he with some sort of nicety, he looks at me and he says, "Sean, I am not going to lie to you." It's the first thing he said. <laughs> <laughs> There's the Pulitzer right there. <laughs> <laughs> Which made me think what? <laughs> yeah, so uh, you know, uh, get out uh, if you possibly can into these different offices. That's great. That's great.
1: Um, Mark Greenblatt, David Rosick, Keith Tomshi, Robin Hughes, and Chris Henault, uh did a great job uh, under fire with the Texas National Guard. And uh, David and Keith, you're here say a little bit about that.
4: Um... In terms of the beginning, actually, I'll let Mark uh, take that
9: as far as how it came in through the window. Um, we um, we we much like Raquel talked about in in looking at what could be viewed as a small story, um, and watching it before it balloons or explodes. Uh, it started very simply. I got a call from a uh, upset mother who had. A daughter who was in the Texas Air National Guard mm. who had witnessed a very unusual award ceremony, very different than the Goldsmith Prize. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> they they gave away for Harvard. Uh, away for Harvard. Um, they they gave out the Badgersill Award in the Texas Air National Award. At the Texas Air National Guard, and this was not a, a, a single incident, but this had gone on for a number of years where they would um, essentially take the woman who had literally bitched and complained the most. Is the quote that. Um, that we had heard Um, and uh, they put a pink crown on her head and made her parade around in front of her colleagues uh, with a trash bag this is how we're training the future leaders of the military and um, and, and don't don't be mistaken the the, the National Guard is not what it used to be uh, the National Guard is now in many ways the backbone of, uh, of, 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 of folks that we send overseas to fight the wars um, so
1: these so are it's not like the Texas Air National Guard in the late '60s where they didn't go to fight the war. <laughs> well, <game> that's apparently, <laughs> but that's a different <laughs> we, story. <we've> <laughs> that's, we That's about evolved. a Yale graduate, yeah, so that know, doesn't involve us. actually. We're looking actually. for the documents right now. <laughs> so <laughs> I
4: just want to interject one other thing here. It wasn't just a pink foam crown. It actually had a Vagisil seal on it and uh, little fatigues hung on it too.
9: It was really something, you know, but but you hear that and you say, okay, well, um, that's upsetting enough, and it, you know, it obviously gets a rise out of folks when they hear about that. But uh, one of the things that we just systemically are trained to do, I think, like like a lot of folks in this room, is to think, is to say, well, is this an isolated incident or is there something bigger here? And so uh, we started looking around and asking around, and um, it led us to some to a local um, congressional source uh, that we had heard through the grapevine uh, that there had been a group of Very, very decorated women who had joined together to complain about uh, systemic discrimination in the the Texas Air National Guard at the time, Um, and and what happened is that we had a very difficult time convincing this group of people to talk to us. So,
1: because they were still serving, and there was one of
9: one of them was still serving. Couple, you know, in the military, they on this level, we're talking about colonels, we're talking about medical doctors who were the flight surgeons for. For, for the bases and um, there are truly is a code in the military especially at a higher level you don't want to rat out the, the problems right. you, 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 you want to handle it internally and so many of these people have been trying they've been filing internal inspector general uh, complaints getting nowhere yeah. and, um, and we, what we did was um, the breakthrough for us was we employed a, a technique that, that I think Sean used to go after a confrontational source and we, we used it to go after a friendly source and that is to get off the phone And I I called up one of the women who filed the complaint. And I said, listen, um, Rita, um, let me come down in person and let me just talk to you. No cameras, no notes, no tape Mm -hmm. recorders. Let me just, I'm going to drive an hour south from where our station is. Let me sit with you and learn from you and just get to know you. And uh, sure enough, uh, that proved to be a tipping point, I think, Mm -hmm. for, for our story, because we were able to gain their trust. They were able to not see us as some intimidating investigative reporter. And journalist team, but it was um, it was more about we were just people trying to help them and um, and, and we, we went from from one source who, end, who ended up opening up um, a treasure trove, and ended up calling up the other people the other women in, in their um, in, in their group and they said you know you really ought to talk you really had to talk to mark and, and and from there we just started the, the whole the whole problem started unraveling from, from from one thing to the next if I could
4: just say one other
9: thing too is that part of why
4: what worked work is because we try to um, approach sources with a win-win approach, you know. So frequently, you know, uh, we, will, we will be on background, you know, immediately because, you know, we're, we tell them that, you know, we, w- we just want to know the map, you know, at that point. And uh, we use that as a trust-building uh, situation also. So if, if we get the information that we need, the overview to be able to figure out then, okay, what's our next approach? Great, and if we and if we do build that trust, where um, I mean, where I think genuinely, most of us, um, <coughs> we actually care about the people that we are reporting. Um, you know, still maintaining some distance, but the point is, is that we don't mean harm to them, and and we appreciate the fact that they that they've spoken out. You know, we make it very clear to them, and so of course, why would I want to uh, damage you in any sense? So what can we do here too? What are your problems and how can we, we handle them? And and that goes a long way, especially than what Mark did, you know, with what because it just snakes through the grid very quickly. I
1: have, I have two questions. One is, are you telling me that these women went to the Inspector General's Office of the National Guard and there was no significant
9: action taken that satisfied them that this would be even stopped? You? I, ironically, let alone punish. I mean, just stop. I, ironically, today, even today, one of the Inspector General complaints is still languishing within the National Guard. And I think they're, they're, they're well beyond four years after she filed a complaint. And you have to understand, once you file a complaint, these people are still working within the system. They have to sure. report to people that they're <coughs> complaining on. And for this, uh, there are regulations that say that they need to be uh, filed and adjudicated within a very short period of time. And yet um, the way the Guard works is it's a closed system. Uh, it's t- technically the National Guard, but really what it is, it's 50 different fiefdoms. Um, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great national story that, that, that remains in, in many ways um, unexplored on the, on the national front where you have, um, if you complain to the National Guard about a problem, they will forward it right back to the very organization you're complaining about. And that's what happened in Texas.
1: That doesn't seem to me to be a positive. Am I just naive New Englander here that doesn't understand justice? Or? Well,
9: well, one of, the, one of the, the the next version of the tipping point in this story is that um, one of the key people that eventually came out of the woodworks was a financial auditor whose job it was to audit the Texas National Guard on behalf of the federal government. And she had been trying for years to get them to, on the financial side of things, uh, do what was right and stop stealing money from the State and federal government. But um, but then she had a problem too, because unlike the Badisville Award, she was then given what was called the Dinosaur Award. <laughs> and and they literally did this in front of the entire command staff, all the top generals in, in Texas, and they said, Well, you're old school. We don't we don't think literally, we don't think that you need to follow the law as closely as you think. And we think we can Take a little bit more of a liberal approach. to Is this a
1: states' rights claim that it was federal law, and that yes. therefore Rick, Rick, uh, Rick Perry could get in on this? Or?
9: Well, well, they just—they what they really were doing was they—they—they were—they decided that they they could take loans out from public money. They could even um, do what's really classic double dipping. They were billing the state and the federal government for work that they did at the same time, and they were they were piling up uh, literally thousands of hours of of pay at a very high rate in order to in order to enrich themselves, but. The, um, the auditor came forward and said and, and essentially blew the whistle uh, on on this practice and um, and and she proved to take the she took she took what we had was a story initially from a, a discrimination story into a whole new level of, 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 of true absolute corruption throughout throughout the top ranks of the guard
0: and and there if I will add mark real quick because to me uh, the best the they shot themselves in the foot by not responding after we did the first series of stories because by not doing that it stirred up a hornet's nest with these women you do not want to get them fired up and that's what happened and they just started coming out and talking to mark and of course mark trying to hold their hands and make sure they understood that we weren't going to burn them right. but once we got past that this this added in general who's in charge of all the different branches of the guard in Texas, who made Mark stand in a hallway with him, give him a time limit of like five minutes or something like ridiculous like that. Wouldn't let Mark, you know, it was like, you can put your camera there and you can talk to me right here and and, and promise that he would look into things. Well, he didn't look into him. That stirred up the women. And because he did that, he shot himself in the foot, because a year or so later, when we came back to revisit the story and nothing had been done, that's when we found out about all the money trail. So the sad part to me of the story is, is that a story that started about these women that were being persecuted, if you will, um, it ended up that didn't, it, that didn't get solved until the money problem came up. Right. To me, that's the tragedy in this story. Um, but in the end, um, you know, there has been a, a, a lot of reform. And so anyway, if they if they hadn't done that, you mentioned, you know, how does the system work? Right. If they hadn't done that, the rest of this never would have come out. So,
2: Can I, can I jump in really quick, yeah. too, because we had a similar – the case of the baby dying in the van wasn't enough. You know, babies die in vans, I guess people don't – that's not what got them worked up. What got them worked up was their tax dollars were being – uh, misspent. And so when you coupled those two together, that's when action started happening, which is which is sad.
10: Mm-hmm. I'm, yeah. interject. How much time elapsed between the point where the anguished mother came in and complained about the treatment of her daughter to the point where
9: the women finally agreed to open up? Was this over a period of months? By the time we but but well it's it's a good question. I would say that we were we were tackling the project on different fronts. It took me I, I focused entirely on the woman at first. Um, And then we, once we realized that there were other people involved we, it it probably took us, it took us about, it really only took us about a week and a half uh, in order to get, start getting him on camera. But there was one woman in particular, uh, one by the name of Colonel Sue Heckinger, who lived up in Dallas, who lived in Houston. And I've been trying to convince her to go on camera. She was a Bronze Star winner, um, who who literally commanded a base uh, in uh, Qatar. And um, during the war, uh, during the most recent Iraq war. And, and won a bronze star for her service and was praised by the top generals running the war. And she um, she was nervous about going on camera with us. Well, we we continued to have conversation 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 on the phone, and finally said, Mark, we'll uh, do the interview. And, and this was in the morning, and I said, okay, well, we're going to fly up. Um, and uh, thankfully, David here is a, a good enough boss that gives us the, the, the leeway to, on, on big interviews, um, uh, just to go after them. And so um, we, I said, well, we and a crew are going to fly up We'll be on a plane a, in an hour and a half. We'll see it, I'll see you soon. Um, we got her on camera before she could just change her mind, and uh, and, and and it, and it evolved. Uh, it evolved from there. But I, I will tell you one one other lesson. I think it's really inspirational to me to be in this room with with, with the um, with the other journalists here and seeing the stories and seeing the work that's, that's all around us that, that all of you have done. But I think there's a commonality here that's worth noting. And that's that. These are not single stories that any of us have done. This is um, all. All every news organization out here is being honored today. They report after report after report after report, and one thing leads to the next, and it and it evolves over time. Mm. And and I think that that is the key to um, really substantial reporting that's memorable, that actually gets action. It's not just a splash or a headline in your newspaper or on TV, but that actually leads to serving our communities and doing why d- doing the. The job that, we're all, that we all aspire to do.
1: Systematic coverage of systematic sto- problems. How many
9: coverage? stories did you guys do? We probably um, did 14 stories. Um, you know, there's others that have done more mm-hmm. uh, over time.
4: We went after it for two plus years. Good. It, w- it was more than 14, I hope, actually. Yeah.
1: Andy Curlis and Steve Riley from the News and Observer in Charlotte. You guys spent a year uh, looking at pay uh, to play. Uh, tell us about that.
5: Um oh, let me get the geography in. We're in Raleigh, but... Kind of sorry, focused. sorry, sorry. We get a little sensitive about that. Sometimes. I understand, right, right.
1: Um, North Carolina State, North Carolina, the, I'm getting good, confused.
5: Going back to the discussion about Tommy Thompson and welfare reform, and at the risk of stating the obvious here, governors are really important people. And that's true whether they are in office or whether they are just out of office. Um, and I think... That's one of the lessons that that we take from what we did. Uh, just very quickly, and I'm going to get to the guy who did all the work. Um, we had been interested in Mike Easley in his behavior for several years. Um, when 2009 rolled around, we knew from looking just at the records of state aircraft that he was not in town very much. He was not a. Uh, he was at the beach
1: a lot. Not hiking the Appalachian Trail, though. Not as area. far as we know. Uh,
5: the he was a very absent leader, and one of the first things that Andy did when he was covering the governor several years ago was ask for his, uh, his travel with the State Highway Patrol, which provides his security. And on the basis of laws passed after 9-11, they denied it, saying it's security, uh, whether it's travel that's about to happen or travel that's already happening. And uh, we couldn't get through that. But what we did do was, in the course of examining some state policy work, both in mental health and in probation, were able to show over time that he had been a really ineffective leader, both in the people that he put in charge and in the way that he didn't pay attention to the people once he put them in charge. And the mental health was a fiasco, and probation was, was just as bad. Uh, at, the, at the same time, during that, that year of 2008, uh, his wife, who already had been working at NC State, had her salary doubled Uh, And then we really got interested uh, about whether Easley on his way out of office was really attempting to set things up both through pensions and through other ways. So when Andy came to our I-team at the end of 2008, my instructions to him were to find out how Mary Easley really got her job. And then I just stood back out of the way, Mm -hmm. and I'll turn it over to Andy. Okay. Can Can you hear me? I'll
11: talk.
1: Try one of the taller.
11: Remind me to to uh, if I forget to say anything, talk about stakeouts because Raquel mentioned stakeouts. No stakeouts (laughs) because I um, uh, before easily I had we did a lot of work on our speaker of our house and um, I mean for two years, me and another guy were writing about him and his associates and I constantly wanted to do a stakeout, right? You know, I thought this would be great to to stake him out and you know da da da, but. But it's um, you know, it's a lot of time, and you don't know what's gonna come of it, right. and we never did. And so when Easley came around, I convinced him to let me do some stakeouts. So I hopefully I'll remember to it say for something National about the National
1: Enquirer that. with one of your other problems, yeah. <laughs> didn't
11: it? yeah, yeah. Let me tell you, I could tell you some stories <laughs> about the National Enquirer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> there's one where the, the uh, Andrew Young's uh, hold up in Chapel Hill, and um, uh, they, they they call the police. We've got the 911 tape. And, and they're on the phone, and they say, there are some um, men in the bushes. They're out back. They're in the bushes. Uh, please get the police here. You know, we're going to be broken into. And pretty soon then you hear the guy come around to the front door, and he says, no, I'm with the National Enquirer. So <laughs> we usually knock on the front door when we when we go to someone's house. Uh, but anyway. They were also selling subscriptions. At the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But anyway, so Easley was a secretive uh, governor. I had wanted these uh, uh, records of his private travel. Uh, Wherever he goes, a trooper goes. And so my way in was uh, to get these trooper expenses. I didn't even want the governor's expenses. I wanted the troopers. And at least then I could show where the trooper had gone all of these times. And they they kept those closed off uh, for years. And uh, so he tells me to look into Mary Easley's job, and I, you know, do what reporters do. You start asking around, and um, I come across this guy named uh, McQueen Campbell. And uh, that's a picture of him over there, if you, if you see on the, the – red jacket. Yeah, he's um, the youngest trustee in the history of NC State. Easley appointed him when he was 30. And um, he was a, he's a pig farmer. Uh, he owns a lube shop. He uh, has a furniture business. Uh, that went bankrupt, and uh, he's in real estate. He's got a very red jacket. And he wears a red jacket, yeah. Um, And so McQueen uh, became uh, I I, I managed to figure out that McQueen was also a pilot and that McQueen had flown the governor, okay? And so uh, I'm doing some reporting on McQueen, and he figures this out, and he's trying to uh, move up to the Board of Governors, which oversees the entire university system, and he decides that he would like to talk to me about the questions I've been asking about him, and I say, "This is great, come on in so uh we talk and and the the key uh point of this uh of this meeting is uh what was your discussions with Mary Easley about her job and he says, "I had no involvement in that, I had nothing to do with it, I had no influence you know I didn't influence her job at all and and I said, "Well, that wasn't the question. The question is, just what were your conversations? You know, did you talk to her about it? Here, you you flown her, you're, you know, longtime friends. You're on the board, and she gets a job at NC State, and there's not a there's not a conversation between the two of you." And, and was an administrator or a teacher? She was one? an executive in residence, um, <laughs> which was um, uh, it was essentially uh, to run a speakers uh, bureau, and what she would do. We we wrote a whole story that dissected her job. What she would do is she would call the Washington Speakers Bureau, and they would send her a list of who was available and how much they cost, and then she would choose. And um, yeah. that's pretty much how it yeah. went. Okay. Uh, so <laughs> I wish I could get that yeah, job. No, like uh, out, right? <laughs> but anyway,
1: add tenure, and you'd have the whole room standing. <laughs> <North Carolina> <laughs>
11: and uh, so there were we have phone records that showed them making phone calls at the same time. And anyway, long story short, the provost had waived all the job search requirements uh f- created funded a job for her in in a day and at the time he was the interim provost and he was about to lose his job okay the new provosts were all on campus being interviewed you know this was a this was not a um, a normal thing and if anybody's tried to get a job at a university you know it doesn't happen in a day and um so so when I'm talking to McQueen about this, there's phone calls on that day between uh, the Easleys and him, and uh, and he's saying there's no conversation. And so ultimately, that was the first story that we reported was that he said that there was no involvement, and it it, it came crashing down immediately um, uh, as as um, McQueen had to uh, basically acknowledge that, the pressure of the story force him to acknowledge that well actually maybe i did talk to him and it became this shifting story and eventually we got emails that showed the governor uh had actually created the job for his wife and um and it was the or what? yeah he worked through mcqueen and it was the mcqueen the chancellor and the provost who were all in constant Uh, Phone calls and emails. I'm talking about, they were talking about the salary, what it would be, you know, what she would be doing. It was very detailed. It wasn't just a a passing mention uh, kind of a thing. And she ends up with a seven, two contracts, seven years, I'm sorry, eight years, a million dollars. I mean, this is not inconsequential. The emails were produced by the university. They did not um, give them to us uh, pursuant to our requests. Uh, It was only after the FBI began subpoenaing of them they produced them for the grand jury and, and, and we we got them and they yeah. voluntarily gave them to us and they gave them to us first that was nice um <laughs> some of the you know well i'll mention the stakeouts.
5: <laughs> oh good. just to give Andy some credit here i sat in on that mcqueen campbell interview and it was it was three hours and when mcqueen campbell said there were no conversations andy looked at him and said i find that hard to believe and, and McQueen did not enjoy that. He just, he,
11: he, <laughs> well and I, just to be clear though, I wasn't I wasn't confrontational about it, though. I just said, Well I find that hard to believe, you know, and and he said, Well that's your problem. You got your mind made up. And I said, No, I don't have my mind made up. I'm just saying, I mean look at the Um So, you know, the thing the thing that was interesting about McQueen is he's a real estate guy and he was running a real estate deal down on the coast. And so this was another part of our story: was the governor gets the choice lot in this development on the waterfront on the marina, the best lot in the neighborhood for, according to the public records, five hundred and fifty thousand dollars. The neighboring lots are all going for seven hundred thousand dollars. Okay, and so and, and I'm talking about the wife uh, gets the job on May twenty-fifth and easily gets the lot on june 9th and mcqueen gets reappointed to the nc state board on june 9th and the developer of the development gets appointed on june 9th to the wildlife resources committee you know it was just a big um timing you know, timing, timing a very timing. powerful timeline let me say and and uh, ultimately we were able to and, and what he easily said is I paid the list price. Uh, list, list price, no negotiating. There was no special deal for me. Right. We were able to ultimately get the closing documents on that real estate deal. And that, that took a period of about four months. They're not public records, and they're still not public records. Um, and there's only a few people who have them, and, and, and I really can't say more about that. But we were able to get those records, and what they showed was he didn't pay 550 which is what the public – the public record shows if you go look right now today, you would think he paid five fifty for that lot uh, at closing. They just crossed out and gave him a one hundred and thirty seven thousand dollar discount, so he paid about four ten for this lot. That was purely an investment. This was at the height of the of the hot market on the coast, and he was going to turn around and sell that for you know, probably a million dollars. And so they basically just lowered his his end of it until he he could flip it. Um, he really was, yeah. So, he he's.
12: Just straight ego that brought him in that day. And how did you bring him in?
11: He was trying to preserve his candidacy for the UNC Board of Governors, and um, and so he he thought that he was going to come in and make this all go away. You know, he was going to come in and he was going to explain everything, and that was going to be the end of it. And um, it didn't turn out that way. <laughs>
1: Uh,
11: but one of the... Do you
1: just stand up in the evening when you're not doing reporting? That's a great... <laughs> nah, no. Um,
11: <laughs> I'll tell you, there's a couple other interesting um, aspects to this. The governor was... Uh, his family was... This was where the stakeouts helped. Yep. He was driving cars that they didn't own. Um, uh, his, whole, his, his family and, and, of course, these car dealers, there were interesting things that they had gotten from state government. Um, he had gotten a... Uh, uh, $50,000 membership at this exclusive golf club and then appointed all of the guys who gave him the the membership to all these, you know, lottery commission, DOT board, so on and so forth. And the thing that was neat about that was was, uh, we were able to show that in the drought, uh, we had a severe drought, and the governor's on TV telling everybody to... You know, shower with your neighbor, and you know, don't flush the <laughs> toilet, and all of this. No, this isn't California. Wait a <laughs> shower with uh, your you know, but, but you know, this was a severe, severe drought that that you know that, that over a period of weeks, well, the government was adamant on saving water, and they were cutting the towns off and everything, and uh, they pumped a creek to uh, keep the golf course uh, green. You know, so we were able to show, and the governor's office intervened, and that's what's great about, I think, uh, uh, reporting on state government is these engineers and these low-level people, they like to cover their uh, memos. They cover themselves in memos. And so there was this, you know, great memo in there about the governor's office that had intervened on this. Um, uh, One of the things about the stakeout, Raquel, and I'd love to hear if you have any more details on that, but... You know, it turns out that stakeouts are not very fun. They're really boring, um, you know. You, you forget to bring your lunch, and you're afraid to leave, you know, because when you leave, something's going to happen. You have and to go to the bathroom. I'm, yeah, you know, and I'm sitting in a... You
1: can't call Domino's on your cell phone and I'm sitting in
11: a... You know, you're sitting in this neighborhood, and you stand out, and people are walking their dogs looking at you, you know, and so you're on your cell phone acting like you're looking for something, and... and um, at one one time, I was trying to find Easley's son, and I had never been able to establish his car. And he was uh, interning at the courthouse, and so there I am in front of the courthouse all day. I know I, sta- I, I went in, I saw him in the courtroom. So I'm up and down all the every uh, parking deck in downtown Raleigh, trying to find this car. And can't find it. It gets to the end of the day, and I'm sitting there, and and this older gentleman comes out, and he I'm on the street, and he gets in the car behind me. And you can see where this is going. He starts, you know, trying to edge out of this uh, space. And, and he's getting closer to me and closer to me. And then he, he runs into me. Wham. And, you know, I'm like, oh, my gosh. And so I get out. And sure enough, there goes, there goes the sun, you know, down the sidewalk. And, and this guy's going, should we call the police? And, and so it was an entire day, literally wasted. And there, there he went down the street to his car. And I had no idea where, he, where it was going. Um, <laughs> So there's one other thing, uh, just, just that the heart of the story really was on permitting, which is something that we haven't said. You know, McQueen, we obtained a memo from a separate private source, private documents. McQueen bragged about his ability to get fast permits. And and, and that was the other sort of part of the, There's you know, there's a quid and there's a quo, right? And um, And he was, what they were able to do was get permits fast for their developments. And so... That, that 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 has helped to answer, well, why, you know, is this going back and forth? They needed permits fast, you know, and so they were essentially, uh, you know, buying influence. Um, so.
9: I, I was just going to short, short, Richard, yeah. you mentioned you can't order a pizza, and I just wanted to let you know sometimes you can order a pizza. Oh, good. <laughs> okay, uh, okay. We, we've been on a, just a, a short story. We've been on a, this is a story about another military story. This time the uh, Army recruiters had uh, – Thought it was okay to threaten young children with uh, arrest and federal federal warrants for their arrest if they didn't essentially sign up and join the military. Um, and uh, we were we were, we were usually called out. impressment, I think. Was, didn't we drop this? It's, it's it's interesting, but we we were staking out the, the recruiter who was at the center of the allegations that we had we had him on tape, so we knew he'd really done this. Um, and um, and Keith and I were, were in a car outside of his house, waiting for a moment when we could have some have what we call an attempted interview with him. Um, and, um, and what happens is we've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. We got hungry. So we decided to order a pizza to deliver to your car? Delivered to the house that we were sitting next to. But when the, when the pizza driver pulled up, yeah, we got it. out of the car, pulled it, and they, the pizza driver says to us, you know, um, you guys look like you're at a stakeout. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we said, we said, oh, oh, never mind that. here's a, here's a tip. Now just go, and just go away. But the the ironic thing about the whole thing is, eventually, the guy that we were really staking out after we have our pizza, he gets in his truck and he himself drives to the pizza store to buy himself a pizza. So when we actually finally get him in a moment that ends up on the CBS, CBS News, use um, this. They, they end up lifting it. The moment is is as Keith and I walking up to the Army recruiter at
12: the pizza store. So sometimes he's coming pizza. out with his, pizza, so with his just pizzas. Which is the best he part. He's
1: got like a stack of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. Fabulous. <laughs> That's a great story. A.C. <laughs> Thompson, Brendan McCarthy, of New Orleans Times, uh, you've been working with ProPublica with uh, Frontline Talkers about bond disorder.
6: Well, there's sort of two phases to this investigation, and I'll talk about the first phase of it and turn it over to this guy for the second phase of it and try to kind of explain the tangled mess of of reporting that we've done. And like everyone, this started with a tip. For me, unfortunately, it started in 2007, so I've been doing this forever. Um, but it, it started with a tip from a friend of mine who's a historian, and she was doing a book about disasters, and she said, um, I'm interviewing these people in New Orleans, and they keep telling me about this little white army of white residents that formed in one neighborhood and were attacking African Americans. And I really don't know how to deal with this. Um, I'm not an investigative reporter. You cover crime stories. Can you try to figure out what happened here? And that was the middle of 2007, and the Nation Institute Investigative Fund gave me a grant to go down there and start checking it out. And at first I was skeptical, but the more time I spent there, I found out that this was in fact true, that this is what had happened, That. On the west bank of the Mississippi River, there's um, a pretty little neighborhood that's predominantly white. And there was an evacuation center set up by the Coast Guard there that was bringing people from across the river to the area and then bussing them out of town. Also, people who were on foot were coming to that area to be bussed out of town. And that there was massive friction between the white locals and the predominantly African-American evacuees who were coming there. And I was thinking uh, a lot of different things about it. And then when people started showing me video and talking about running around with Uzis, I I started believing that this in fact was really what had gone down. And the videos that they were showing me were videos of this little white army um, creating barricades in their neighborhood, taking down trees and debris and blocking off the streets so people couldn't come in. And it was people talking about shooting people on the videotape saying, oh yeah, um, so tell us about, this is home video from 2005, tell us about the shooting. Oh, well maybe we shouldn't talk about the shooting. And then somebody else says, oh, but no jury would ever (coughs) convict on that. And then it got to video that was people just outwardly, you know, outrightly bragging about shooting folks and and saying it was like pheasant season in South Dakota. If it moved, you shot it. Um, and so what, what we did over the course of that first prong of the investigation is we found people who'd been shot, who were African American folks who'd been passing through that neighborhood. We found people who were involved in the shootings who said, "Yes, I was there." And typically, what they say is, "Oh, my neighbor shot this guy on this date at this time in this intersection," and it was because the person was quote-unquote a thief or a thug or a looter. And then we found doctors and all kinds of other corroborating evidence that, that showed, um, you know, for example. We went to the trauma surgeons for one of these people who had been shot uh, in this neighborhood, African-American uh, gentleman, and said, you know, is this is, uh, got the medical records, got the doctor on the record. And he said, yes, this man was shot on this date at this time. And if he hadn't come in here, he would have died since he was shot in the jugular vein, uh, basically in the neck with a shotgun from close range, got the medical records, all that. So that was the first sort of prong was,
7: can I ask you how you got the medical records?
6: Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a good story. Um, how I got the medical records was, um, I connected with the person who'd been shot. He and I went to the hospital, and and the way I got to him is because everybody's phone numbers have changed in New Orleans. Mm. I um, looked up an obituary in the Times Picayune with his family name in it, called every single found numbers for all of his relatives who were all listed there. Finally, found one who had a working phone number said, I'm working on a story trying to find out who shot your brother. Um, Can you get him in touch with me? And he called me and I said, yeah, I was just hanging out with these guys in Algiers Point neighborhood who were talking about shooting people. Maybe they're the guys who shot you. So, when we got the medical records, which helped verify that all this happened, um, we went over to the hospital. Uh, Myself and Don Harrington had been shot. And... So the victim gave you the records? The the victim and I went to get the records because he didn't have them. We went to the hospital and they looked at us Really weird when we were in the records room, right? They were looking at us like, what is going on here? And, and Donnell and I are just standing there, and finally the lady says, uh, so you've given me your, your date of birth and your name, and there's somebody with that date of birth and a very similar name in here, and I'm not sure whether you're trying to fake us or not and get these records and do some identity theft thing. And Donnell said, lady what what does the name say and she says it says that daniel merrington was in here with this date of birth at that time and he pointed to his neck which has this huge scar on it and he says well the problem was i got shot in the neck and in the back and in the front and i wasn't really talking very clearly at that time (laughs) i think maybe somebody got my name wrong and of course by page three they had the right name on there and, and he could speak a little more clearly and eventually gave us the records but at first I thought it was a big scam and and having like a big huge scar that helped convince the people there so that was the first prong was looking at this um, the reaction of this white neighborhood this fear of african-american people coming into the neighborhood Um, and and really the really blunt things that people said to us in that neighborhood that the white community there that said look, these people were outsiders, we could look at them and see that they were outlaws. Um, You know, one person told me, well, all African-American gang members in New Orleans wear white t-shirts. So if we saw somebody wearing a white t-shirt, we knew they were a criminal. This is in New Orleans in the middle of summer when it's very, very hot um, and everything's collapsed.
13: Could I ask um, the people who brag to you, the shooters who seem to kind of brag early on, do they talk to you now? Do you know how they feel now? They they're around. really
6: unhappy with me because the FBI <laughs> keeps coming and talking to them. They're, they're not big fans. They're not still point. talking. No, not so much. And so that was that was the prong one. And But the weird thing is when you go down these paths and you, you look at this stuff is, is that oftentimes you stumble into something else that's equally as crazy, equally as disturbing. And that was the Henry Glover story. I, another reporter said to me, and I'm – this out that people were helping out all along reporters historians etc and she said look i know you're doing this thing about new orleans i encountered this weird thing down there i don't know what it means but check it out and it was the um statement of a guy who'd gone to a police accountability group about what happened to him in the wake of her Katrina, and it was a really really crazy story he said I was driving along one day, it was September 2nd, 2005, the storm had just hit, and I encountered a man who had been shot. And I tried to rescue him, I tried to save him. And I put him in my car, and I put his friends in my car, and I drove to where the police were camped out to uh, try to get him medical attention. And the problem is, the police kicked our asses, and they were physically abusive to us, and they let the guy bleed to death in the back of my car, and the next thing I know, Uh, my car turned up behind the police station, burnt up, with his body in it. And, yeah, exactly. And I've been covering crime stories for a long time. I had never heard anything like this. And I thought, this is is some craziness. Why did this person give me this lead? This is like the anti-lead. It's some hallucinogenic hysterical thing. (laughs) (laughs) And I was thinking that. And then I got the autopsy from the coroner, who we had to sue to get the autopsies from, even though they're public record. And there was, a, there was an autopsy for the guy described in this statement to the Police Accountability Group. And it was the autopsy for Henry Glover. And Henry Glover was indeed burned up. He was so burned up that his remains were put in five separate body bags. And from the, the autopsy, you could tell there's very little left of him. But it also noted that there were metal fragments in, in his body that were left there. And the more I pursued this story, the more I interviewed witnesses to it, the more I interviewed law enforcement sources who showed me <clears throat> photos of of the charred body. The more it turned out that actually there had been some really awful thing that had happened involving the police shooting and burning of Henry Glover, and that was that was the first prong of it. Uh, and I should turn it over to Brendan to sort of talk about how the story developed and what we learned from there and how. Frontline in the times and came into it. So we start with that sort of place, the, the mystery of Henry Glover and... Let me just line.
1: ask, to keep going, I want to get the other two groups in. So I, I okay. want to hear from you. But
14: sure, sure, go. sure. So AC has got his Algiers, um, his vigilante incident, and he's done some reporting. And meanwhile, we're looking, the FBI starting to come around on some other cases, and we're doing some report on some police corruption stuff. Um, and we decide, uh, essentially, you know... Um, it, at one point, we're almost working on the same stuff, and our bosses somehow, you know, had talked and said, "Let's, let's, let's do this together." Um, so we had a, this really weird meeting in which they, you know, AC here and Tom from Frontline comes down, and we sit down and we basically open our cabinets and say, "This is what we have. What do you have?" Um, you know, he had been, uh, you know, working chipping away at this for two years at least prior. Um, you know, I, I cover a crime, uh, you know, locally. As well as uh, my colleagues, and uh, we had some stuff. And we, uh, both at times, our eyes widened when we looked, well, you got this, and well, we got this. And then everything started to come mm-hmm. together, you know. Um, we ended up looking, uh, you know, because of, of in the wake of the storm, there really, uh, police didn't write reports for months. Uh, they threw things away, they hid, I mean, it, it, you know, just it runs the gamut. And um, essentially, uh, we looked at all these incidents after the storm in which the police shot people. Um, there, we found cases in, in, in which, um, you know, uh, we got autopsies of guys shot in the back, you know, of, 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 of just wild accusations that, that, you know, further and further, as we reported, it started to ring true. And this all kind of dovetailed with some other federal investigations, which we had been writing about in the wake of the storm, that, that are just now coming to light. So essentially, the long story short, uh, you know, is um, we're really still plugging along. It's kind of tip of iceberg on some of these other cases. And the Law and <coughs> Disorder series came out in um, mid-late December. And give the sum up of what we know about
6: Henry Glover now.
14: Oh, yeah. So now we know Henry Glover uh, was uh, walking to a, a pot, pick up some pots and pans at a, a sort of a strip mall in suburban New Orleans. Uh, he's about a you know, middle-aged African-American male, uh, New Orleans born and bred. And he was running at the building, and a, uh, a middle-aged kind of rookie cop who's an expert marksman figured that he was a threat to him, so he shot him in the chest. Allegedly. Allegedly. Uh, and then um, Henry uh, fell to the ground. This good Samaritan comes by, picks him up, you know, and then that's where he takes him to the police compound. So we found doctored police reports and all, all kinds of things just in the last few months. And... Um, All the questions which we sort of, uh, you know, rose and started asking in our series now match the description of these other cases we've been writing about, and there's been several indictments and many more to come in the next coming weeks. So, you know, the same questions like, where did this gun come from? We're we're learning that in another case, it's a drop gun that the the police had, a a sergeant had in his garage. So... um, Planted at the scene of a shooting. Yeah. So it's still this work in progress, and you know, throughout this whole thing, um, you know, we've been uh, our agencies have been really proactive in suing, um, um, getting records, and you know, and, and Tom's been down here, and, and it's it's kind of cool too because sometimes I can call up some of these folks and say, hey, I'm from the Times Picayune, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and whereas I'm, I'm the local guy, and whereas AC outsiders. can, you know, and vice versa. So it's 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 very much the snowball thing.
8: we it's still very much working. If I may, um, can you all talk about the shaping of the package, how Frontline and uh, Publica and the papers came together, yeah. and um, what were the, the assembly blocks, and what did, you, what did you learn about that kind of collaboration? Well,
3: I mean, the, uh, we have a, a, a long fairly long relationship with ProPublica. Steve Engelberg uh, was the manager. There was investigations editor of the New York Times when we did co-productions with them. He went to the Oregonian. We did a major co-production on <coughs> called The Meth Epidemic uh, with Steve. Then when he came to ProPublica, the sort of conversations about how to work together have continued. <coughs> it's quite complicated uh, to figure out how to put a, a documentary team into an investigative project. And uh, uh, the truth is that with all respect to our, our print friends, they don't quite get what we need. Mm. And, uh, and we understand that they have deadlines that are rolling all the time and, and need to keep printing. So it's a, it's a, it, it, it takes um, a huge degree of trust to figure out how to how to make this work together. But when um, we, we knew about AC's work, his previous worker, when he joined... ProPublica, uh, we'd already talked about some other projects right. the previously that he was going to do with us. Um, uh, w- 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 Steve Engelberg was just, like any great editor, totally passionate and a great salesman. He's pushing and saying, look at this stuff, look at what this is going to be. And, uh, so we said, okay, why don't we uh, – they had a, a witness to, um, to another incident, and, uh, and they could get somebody who was going to prepared to go on camera, and we said, right, we'll just pay for it, go shoot the interview. We've got that interview, we're about to put it on the air, put it together finally, it looks like, Um, but it's been, what, six months now, and we've been sitting on that interview waiting to, a year, is it really a year? (laughs) Anyway, we we started to gather material, we made a a commitment without yet knowing quite what the documentary was going to be, and then we got uh, Tom and sort of said to him, hey, we've got a job for you, we want you to go in for a few months here, and then a few months longer, and kept him on the job as an investment in the story. He's been shooting himself having to to do a lot of that because it's been a a sort of low budget project. And now we're just at the stage where we look at the whole body of work, there's a large narrative to do and we will, we do, we lose, uh, we lose the kind of uh, uh, you know, uh, you, we don't have a kind of uh, scoop uh, idea on on camera, but on the other hand, that doesn't matter. You know, the fact that the story is coming out progressively over, over time, when you put it together on television terms, it's going to be a, an extraordinary narrative, and we will be backed up with all the material. Uh, that there, were. at the same time, we're publishing on the ProPublica website, on the Tasmanian website, and on our own website. Each of those are somewhat differently designed. Ours is a lot more interactive and has some elements that we're working on and trying to figure out the grammar of how you present these multiple cases on television and or, or on the website and, and, and integrate video and print so so it's, um, it, it really is, as I said last night, it's, um, it's a work in progress the, uh, I think the idea of a rolling investigation that happens sort of online and in print and that then turns into a major broadcast piece and then feeds back into that project is a, is a great idea. Years, some years ago, we did a project actually with Mother Jones, and Mark Shapiro came in and said, "We have a um, story about a nuclear trigger being uh, exported to Pakistan uh, via South Africa." And he said, "I want to do. A, why don't we do a film about it?" And I said, well, "I don't have a budget for it. We can't afford it. So, you know, good luck." And um, he came back and said, "Actually, I've got three people in South Africa, the go betweens, who, who will talk to me, and I'm going to Cape Town on my own dola- You know, on Mother Jones's dollar." And I said, okay, we'll buy the cheapest cameraman in Cape Town we can find to shoot those interviews with you. So when he came back, we literally published the print story with those three interviews. The result was the Justice Department guys who wouldn't talk to him before and had been following the stories – watched them online, and called him up and said, yeah, well, maybe we'll talk to you. So I said, okay, I'll buy the cheapest cameraman in Washington for you. And so we shot those interviews as well. Are you sending and in cell phone, guys? Right. We, well, basically. But we, at this point, it's sort of you know little bits of money here and there. And we got those interviews up, put those on the website. Some more material came in. The LA Times did a story as well. We posted that. And the next minute, uh, he gets a call from Mr. Khan who is the man who's the receiver of all of this? Not A. Q. But another Mr. Khan, who calls up quite outraged because he's watched all of, he's read all this on the website, and he records the interview. So we've now got Mr. Khan. We've got all these pieces on the on the website, and finally, it's summer. Frontline's off the air. We cut a piece for the, the news hour, put it up as a 15-minute-long story. So that was a great kind of um, model for a sort of project that I can see in the future any of us doing together. And, and, and what we don't do enough of is have chances to sit down together with Andy and say, what are you doing next, Andy? Because I'd love to know because we'd love to you know, be able to see whether there's a way to plug into a story that's got a national, um, a national uh, uh, potential for it.
4: So. David, can I ask a, uh, a question here? Uh, hmm. We do essentially long form, especially sure. for uh, for local, I mean, we've done nine right. minutes, ten minutes. Yeah. Uh, our Firestone tire piece, for example, was about right. ten minutes long, and and we also do, you know, continuous series of say six minutes yeah. at at a shot. Yeah. And one of the reasons for that is because we do stress narrative, right. and the main reason why is because I think that it pushes <coughs> a particular question, reportorial question that doesn't get asked enough or emphasized enough, which is the why, Mm -hmm. which is what really, is really where all the riches are, Mm -hmm. Um, and the perspective. Um, And so I'm sort of curious in terms of, uh, we have a sort of system for, you know, keeping straight um, what we might project might be happening here, you know, in other words, we toss out a number of theories, you know, uh, in terms of where the story might go just to prepare us from a production standpoint. Um, you know, so that we're on our feet, but we we divorce ourselves from them too in the reportorial, you know, process. Um, I'm so that works for us. I'm sort of curious, how do you deal with something like this? Where I mean, are you hearing a narrative already? You know, in terms of the stuff that you're seeing, or are you thinking that because it's, what, it's got what, longer form to play with? Or yeah, what? and that it's still evolving, and that and that and that actually, in a sense. It's easier to, to kind of figure out what the narrative might be yeah. when you're actually doing the first-person reporting. Yeah, you
3: know. well, I mean, uh, you know, this is uh, – uh, uh, Tom should talk a little bit about it, but he, but he started to sketch out um, his uh, a version of a narrative, how we might take – these are five or six cases, you know, it's very hard to put it all together – and I think our job now is to, do the, uh, is to do the puzzle, you know, is to sort of move the pieces around on the board in front of us and to say what's the best kind of narrative structure here is, uh, you know, is it once upon a time A.C. Thompson, you know, gets a tip. You can do that kind of – you can find um, narrative hooks to, to hang this stuff on. You can do a chron- – and then we found – and then we found right. – and, you know – that that always works for you. Chronology is your friend. That's always of a, course, That's yes. always a great a, a great story, and sometimes it's uh, it's um, it's Shakespearean. You know, it's hmm. five acts. You know, and you say you really got to think about this in acts. I mean, I find all the time when I go into editing rooms, lots and lots of material. Somebody if, if people are confused, don't quite know. I just said, find the acts or find the chapters. If you find the chapters and give them a name and really just stop thinking about all the rest of it, but just do that story on its own and do this story on its own. We'll figure out which order they'll come in later, or maybe we'll even break them apart and reweave them, but right. at some point you've got to get those stories Structural. to sort of work on their own terms, each on its own terms as a, as a, as a, story, and a story on its own. Yeah.
12: Uh, Whit, I know you want to go on. I would just say that there's a, a tricky part to this particular project, which is the evolving nature of the story and our partnership, and at a certain point frontline as a documentary you know you do kind of have to stop you have to say okay we have to have a story now we have to structure a film now meanwhile you know these guys keep on finding more stuff and it, 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 any day that you come to the office it could completely alter this the story just completely change it and we don't we don't deal with that very well as an hour-long program. <laughs>
1: um, but this is the Thomas Wolfe syndrome, and this is Maxwell Perkins <laughs> over here. You know, that's <laughs> right. Thank you. But you know,
12: in a certain, and, but so we have to build in a, a tremendous amount of flexibility into whatever the structure is, because I strongly feel that this story is going to evolve up until the last moment.
3: Well, the great art of editing is leaving things out.
12: We, yeah, <laughs> that's right. great.
1: Copy that down, all of you. That was it right there. Uh, we're going to run. I'm going to arbitrarily say we're going to run a few minutes late because I want to get everybody in on this conversation. So, just a few minutes late. Uh, uh, Joe Stevens, Lena's son, uh, death on the rails, Washington Post. Tell us about it.
13: Uh, well, I'm a investigative reporter, and Lena's the uh, was as of last summer was covering mass transit and Metro Rail, and there was uh, we didn't start with the tip like. Most people, we started with stark disbelief. There was a – the impossible happened on June 22nd when two Metro trains crashed, and there's supposed to be a fail-safe system, a computer, that makes that impossible to happen. It happened. The head of Metro Rail said this was a freak occurrence. And uh, speaking for my colleague, she didn't believe it was a freak occurrence. um, Twisted my arm as investigative reporter to join her, Mm. and we've spent um, most of our waking moments since then uh, disproving that it was a freak occurrence. Um, we were able to get documents that showed eventually this was a long trail because Metro gave us nothing under their Freedom of Information um, policy for months throughout the reporting of these stories. But we were able to find documents showing that Metro was actually a, an accident waiting to happen. And just yesterday uh, we were killing time after we got into town and Lena was at the Harvard co-op and pulled a book down off the shelf and came over to me and said, look at this. And it said, it was a book on mass transit. And It said, Washington's metro system is the most impressive system in the country. And um, I don't think anyone would agree with that now. (laughs) Um, What we found was documents which showed that they had almost had catastrophic crashes time and again, and where trains had come very close to crashing. They'd narrowly averted crashes, um, often by the the train operators doing what they weren't supposed to do, is override the crash avoidance system and hit the emergency brake. Um, And uh, the first instance we found was on Capitol Hill, and they had not told anybody about this. And um, they had never boiled down why these trains came close to crashing. And you would think if the impossible almost happened, you would stop everything and figure out why a bunch of people almost died, and they didn't. They just kept continuing on. Um, Jim, can I ask you quickly, which documents were these? The, the documents we eventually got, um, we initially just asked Metro for all the documents related to this and that, and they said, essentially, go fish. I, actually, initially, they said nothing. We didn't even, they didn't acknowledge even getting our boys. And um, then when I came in to join Lena, who'd done... Great work on the crash, aftermath of the crash, and Lindsay Layton, who covered Metro previous to Lena. Um, and she was exhausted and been working nights and weekends, and I'd been on vacation. <laughs> and i come in, and, and we brainstorm on how we're going to get these documents. And so we came up with a plan to ask other entities for the document okay, where else would these documents be? Metro's not going to give them to us. We could sue them, but that'd take forever. Where else can we get them? And the very first idea I came up with, which I thought was brilliant, was to um, ask other subway systems around the country for any correspondence they had or notes on discussions with Metro. And I said, let's go to San Francisco, because Lena had done this fabulous story with Lindsay Layton about how um, San Francisco's subway is very similar to Washington's Metro, but they had put a, a redundant system to stop crashes in. And we thought, and my brilliant idea was Oh, maybe on the day this crash happened, someone from Metro emailed a colleague in San Francisco and said, my God, that system you told us to put in, we didn't do it, we just killed nine people. Wow. Um, so put in this FOIA, and very quickly comes in, can I tell this? This yes, always varies. versus Lena, I'm not sure why. I, the, the FOIA response comes back from San Francisco immediately, and there's actually something there. I said, great, Peter, and it wasn't what I expected at all. What it was was a series, and I'm going to paraphrase now in case this is being recorded. Um, it was a series of emails and letters from Metro to their colleagues in San Francisco saying, "We're in deep trouble. We're being beat up by the press." Listen, would you mind? Here, here is a ghost-written letter to the editor of the Washington Post. Would you mind signing this and sending it in immediately and asking it to be published, and, it, and and suggesting that Lena's earlier reporting was inaccurate. And they, to their credit, in San Francisco, said apparently, "Ah, no way."
3: <laughs> so
2: that was they the
1: first Boston thing we got. To, so they asked Boston there. They
2: asked, but they actually talked to the Boston, uh, the folks in Boston because Boston NBTA. has, yeah, yeah, and have similar systems. But everybody's system is a little bit different. Yeah. And anything from the oh, oh, this is good. Uh, that
13: was my that was my next request was to <laughs> was to Boston, and I got a. Um, a BlackBerry message back almost immediately from the woman who I think was their general counsel, their top lawyer anyway, and she said, too broad. Too broad. It was just like, too broad. It's like like, what, what's broad about it? It's very simple and succinct, and I made a legal argument, and then they came back a couple weeks later and said, we'll look for those for $4,000. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we never got those. But to make a long story slightly shorter, we ended up doing a series of workarounds, and from uh, Metro, we decided, was a compact of three states, essentially Virginia, Maryland, and D.C. And so we thought copies of their records would be there. We've, their uh, paper is a safety oversight organization, which became a big deal over time. We thought they would have copies of documents. Um, they declined to give us those documents also. We filed FOIAs with D.C. They never, to this day, we filed over a dozen of these. D.C. has not acknowledged even receiving one of these FOIAs. We, we filed these with Maryland, got a tepid response, and thank God we filed requests with Virginia. And this is like a third string for these documents that were copied from Metro, copied to their safety oversight organization, which was a compact of the three states as well. And some of these documents were also copied in a file cabinet in Virginia. And we got documents from Virginia. They actually take um, their open records all seriously. But it was a long, convoluted process to get these documents, um, and the people who should have been giving them up still haven't given them up.
1: Great work. Wow, well, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Fantastic. Mark Higgins, John DeLeon, uh, Seattle Times. You guys did a terrific job on the death before reporters sales. something about that.
8: Well, the story is quite different than some of the ones that you've all described. Um, it's It's not. Kind of But we were fortunate because we had the investigative firepower within the organization and that informed <coughs> our approach to this story in a very profound way. Um, in a nutshell, <laughs> we had a gentleman who went into Uh, uh, how this individual had, had been um, granted clemency in the state of Arkansas, and from that point on, we knew we had a much broader, deeper story to tell, and very little time to tell it because it's very competitive stories. You can imagine everybody you know who had a notepad or a camera wanted to swarm this thing. and we are good at that, and, and that's what we did as well. And so over the course of a week, we went from the first breaking news alert, the, f- the first media outlet to, to name the suspect, the first outlet to profile the suspect, to sort of the cradle-to-grave profile the following Sunday. So within that one-week period, um, <coughs> we accomplished quite a bit and covered a, a great amount of ground. We sent a reporter immediately to Arkansas, um, Went to a little town called Mariana and began to to pull the 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 story of this of this young man who grew up in uh, poverty, had experienced uh, you know horrible uh, conditions along the way, and by seventeen had fa- was facing a, a ninety six year prison sentence. Um, Huckabee, um, unlike Bill Clinton, was actually known for for granting uh, these pardons, and he did so over a thousand times, and, um, you know, the odds are um, that, in fact, sooner or later, uh, somebody that you've let out will will do something uh, horrible, and that's exactly what happened. And so when we started calling in Arkansas, um, you know, one of our lead quotes was uh, from a prosecutor saying, you know, I I knew this day was going to come, and it it did, and uh, sort of profound results. So. what we what we did was we did the print job that you all are familiar with, and then we we did quite a bit more online than we have ever done before. And Tiffany Campbell, our one of our producers, and, and John DeLeon can talk about those elements. But in essence, we really did um, some different things um, using Google Wave and Dippity and some other techniques that I'm still not familiar with. Um, but it produced um, an impact that we hadn't seen before. And there was an involvement with our stories. There was an appreciation for the folks that do get their news on their phones. Um, there was understanding that Seattle Times, um, known for its, its great um, narratives and its great investigative pieces, was, was, was transforming right before the public's eye. And so it was a very interesting moment for us. Um, we had uh, Dave Boardman, the executive editor, who Many of you probably know, um, out in the newsroom at one point, um, you know, tweeting out um, bits of the story, and it was it was uh, really quite a quite a scene. So, um, I don't know, Tiff, do you want to talk a little bit about the online?
15: Uh, sure. Um, probably one of the more interesting and applicable things that we did was in terms of. Um, You know, online we have all these tools and a lot of times we have all this cool stuff and we're kind of looking for a way to apply them. And so when we got in the middle of this manhunt, I think the manhunt was about 40 hours probably total. And Seattle's a pretty techie town and Twitter was kind of exploding and there was just all this interaction. But we decided um, Google Wave, all of us had just gotten Google Wave invitations like maybe a couple weeks before that. We'd been passing around the producers and we decided to open up a Wave and make it public And kind of see what would come out of it and probably the most interesting thing was is that um, as Seattle was kind of in this chaos of like trying to find this guy. He was coming from way down south. It was about a 40 mile um, about 40 miles in between Parkland where they were shot and where the and where they thought he was going and so for about 40 hours the police were chasing them and there were sightings everywhere and scenes and so Someone put up, uh, started a Google Map of basically tips, and it was just kind of like an ongoing, live, real-time, you know, map tip line of um, the police were here. We saw this, we did that, and it was actually really fascinating to watch. And. It got so popular that we eventually crashed uh, Google Wave. <laughs> um, we still you know, have a hard time accessing it. So, but fortunately, some people uh, were smart enough to take some uh, PDF screen grabs of it, so we actually have a record of what happened. So that is good. Um, some of the other interesting things was we just had photographers who were already on Twitter and at the stakeouts where they were, you know, SWAT teams were charging into houses where they thought the suspect was, and. They were out there just kind of giving these real-time updates and photos and iPhone photos and Twitter and things like that. So you could really participate and and really be there with that story, kind of with everyone. And it was really kind of amazing to watch the community come together and kind of work with all of the journalists that we had.
3: Do you have any concerns about people coming in putting false information into that? And uh, how how would you handle that if it happened?
15: Sure, and um some of it was just like just like in any tip line there's there's a lot of suspect stuff coming in just as much as there is is real real stuff and so it was mostly just opening up to things that were verifiable. Like someone could say, you know, the police were here and, and they and they stopped here or I, I took this photo of this police car going here. I don't know what it means, okay, but I'm gonna put it in this thing and see if we can make a, a larger sense of it. But I think there's always that risk when something is, is as public as that and so it was kind of more of the, the community was able to as much say, well, that didn't work, and, or, or that wasn't right, or now we found this more information so that we can update things that were clearly, you know, inaccurate. But with something like this where it was so verifiable, I mean, the police were either there or they weren't. Everything yeah. was so...
5: John, did you want to add?
1: Well, the I
10: just wanted to uh, briefly state the backdrop to this story was less than a month earlier we had... Another individual who drove up on a couple of Seattle police officers who were sitting in a car, um, one was a training officer, the other was a rookie, and they were comparing notes or, or whatnot, and this man, point blank, opened fire and killed one of the officers and wounded the other. So for Seattle, that's, you know, relatively unheard of. Uh, we, we rarely have cops killed, so the, the whole area was still um, getting over that tragedy when this, this thing happened, so immediately... Uh, obviously, four officers killed is, is, is quite an event, but immediately this just struck a chord in the community, and I, I think we all noticed right away that there was a thirst for any and all information that, that we can provide. Uh, me being an old cop reporter and uh, breaking news editor, uh, this was one time where literally for the 40 hours that uh, that uh, was mentioned, it was a real-time story. I mean, we really, we were working for the newspaper, but the deadlines were, were a second secondary thought because... We were posting information as we got it, and, and as Mark said earlier, you know, almost immediately we got a name, again through through good sourcing from from a reporter. You know, we went back to the cops and said, "We're hearing this is the guy. Is this your guy?" The cops lied to us. The guy, the, the Flack said, "No, he's not the guy." Um, but we we had reason to believe he was lying, so we went ahead and, and went with it. Right before we broke that, he went ahead and went on TV, and he knew we were about to go with it, so he. He mentioned, you know, he, he did confirm that it was, it was an individual that uh, we were looking at. And from there, the story just just basically exploded. And you know, we were in the newsroom continuously for those 40 hours basically chasing this thing down.
12: Were you guys concerned about, um, kind of along the lines of what David was saying, about a certain kind of mob rule uh, that would kick in with such an emotional story? You know that would impact the reporting?
10: To a certain degree, because there was some of that earlier on with the with the Seattle shooting. Um, you know, during the during the forty hour manhunt, particularly that Monday, that Monday was basically spent the day after the shootings was basically spent chasing lead after lead after lead. You can seen here, you seen there. Um, we a columnist uh, did a piece on how basically any young African American male of stocky build was was suspect and any time it was a sighting. You know, from the that a citizen would call in, the police would, would swarm to that area. Uh, there were any number of people who were questioned who were search. um, and searched. It, and it, it sort of t- it took on kind of an ugly uh, atmosphere to that point. I mean, a lot of the comments, we had to closely monitor the comments and, and, and pull out quite a few.
1: I uh, want to say this has been the most enjoyable hour and a half that I've spent a long time around here. We see a lot of journalists in, but there's something special about having investigative reporters and editors come into the Shorenstein Center. Uh, You guys are reminders of what's best about the American press, and I want to thank all of you on behalf of the Shorenstein Center, on behalf of Harvard, frankly, a little audaciously on behalf of the American people. Uh, You are the guardians that keep us safe as a democracy, and uh, I heard once again that it requires patience, uh, strong intuitions, tenacity, and a commitment to more than just day to day reporting, to do first class investigative reporting, and you've all proved that you do it. So thank you. Thank you all very much for coming here to be with us and spending time with us this morning. Allison has some things that she'd like to give you before we go. More Harvard likes to so want to <laughs> <is> not... <laughs> pretend that you've graduated from the university and uh, go to your editors looking for a raise. Not
7: uh, Sean Murphy. I'm lesson, so I
1: figured. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Okay. Well, I have, uh, I know, you want to give it to another group? Yeah, I'm That I the other I wonder if Richard would let me answer question.
3: Where is that? Very nice. kind of Yeah. yeah. You got my card. Thank you. Good. Okay. Thank you. Good. 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 work. Yeah. You know. I mean, the thing is, we need. to know, there's some water behind the dam. There's nothing there. but, uh, pretty often what happens in the face of the, of the uh, uh Oregonian, yeah. they publish. We still didn't publish it. Thank you. It was a local story in uh, Oregon. Was was it was fancy. We did thing it. Thing you. it yeah. We did yeah. it. Yeah.